Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome back everyone. It has been a bit of a break. As I said in my last episode, I wasn't quite sure how long my producer was going to take off and she has taken the whole of her summer holidays, uh, her school holidays. Uh, and uh, that's been great for me. I've ha had that chance to reflect rather than just recording, thinking where I would like the rest of this season to go. So uh, you have lots of episodes in this kind of theme that I've been uh, delving into in terms of just the, the challenges that we face, uh, unique challenges as academics uh, that we need to often overcome. Uh, controversial issues, challenging issues, things that we don't typically talk about, uh, but I think that we need to air and think deeply about. I've got a few interviews coming up. Uh, Petra Boynton, who's written a fantastic handbook uh, on safety, uh, and that's about uh, health, uh, in particular mental health issues in the academy. Um, uh, a very prolific commentator on some of the issues that uh, we've been discussing in the podcast. So looking forward to interviewing her. Uh, An inter interview coming up with Andrew Scott, a coach who works with Nancy Klein's listening technique. Uh, so some fascinating stuff coming up. Uh, but uh, lots of other things uh, besides, and uh, I will get back to some of the stuff on impact. I'm planning a few episodes on evaluation. Uh, I've got a couple of interviews uh, I'm scheduling on that as well. So lots more to come. But for now, let's get back to this theme. And this week, uh, I want to have a think about how we deal with some of these really challenging issues. These themes that we've been thinking about over the last few weeks uh, around self-compassion and authenticity. So this week we are going to have a look at another one of these psychological challenges that prevents us from bringing our full authentic selves to work. This is part of my Impact Culture book and you'll be hearing a chapter on this in a moment because for me, if you can't bring your authentic self to work, then you're never going to find or create a culture in which you can belong. If you have to bring a version of yourself to work that is somehow going to be acceptable to other people, then that's not really you. And yeah, you can be part of something, but it's never going to feel like home. And so uh, I'm looking today at imposter syndrome. I want us to think about how we can actually be ourselves. We don't have to pretend to be somebody we're not in order to feel like we are somebody. And of course, this is what imposter syndrome does to us. Uh, we're not really sure that uh, we believe in ourselves enough. Uh, we're not really sure that that view of us that other people have as some kind of expert really marries up with our own experience of ourselves. We, of course, know all of the gaps in our knowledge, all of our fallibilities, all of the mistakes that we've made, and we far, feel far from uh, experts uh, in many of the situations that we get put into. And so do we just create some kind of act to fill the shoes that somehow we feel like we need to fill? 
well, can we bring a bit of humility to this and say, yeah, you know what, I am just me. And yeah, I've got some expertise and I'll do what I can to help and to advise, uh, but only as far as my knowledge will take me. Now, uh, this for me is really important because so few people talk about this, despite the prevalence of this as a challenge. Uh, I was doing a, a training just last week where someone told me that one of the most transformational moments in her career was when a famous professor confessed to experiencing imposter syndrome. Uh, and the reason that she said this was so powerful for her was because for the first time she felt seen. She felt like she wasn't alone. She felt like it was acceptable to actually have these feelings and so to own these feelings. Her hero was a, a human being, after all, just like her. And of course we know this stuff. Uh, but uh, as I listened to this story and, and realised just how powerful that was for her, it made me realise how important it was for me to continue, as I have been, talking about this and these other issues. Just to explain, this is normal, this is real. You get this at any stage in your career. A lot of people think this is just something that you get uh, as an early career researcher. In my experience, as I've mentored and coached people, it is, in fact, uh, new professors who tend to experience this most acutely. All of a sudden, I've got this prof title in front of my name. Uh, and now all these people somehow think I am the world expert because I am professor of such and such. <laughs> and yeah, it is this gap, and I'll tell you more about this in the chapter, but this gap between how we see ourselves and how the world sees us, which is the root cause of imposter syndrome. Now, in my trainings, uh, I regularly ask people to talk about this. Um, I give people the chapters that you're going to be hearing as I talk through these, uh, these issues um, in the podcast. I give them this as a pre-workshop reading exercise. Uh, and uh, I invite people then to discuss their own experiences of perfectionism, people-pleasing, uh, imposter syndrome, and the like, and how they tackle this. And... Uh, as we do this, uh, there is this kind of revelatory experience for people. Uh, and I bring people back from their breakout rooms and ask people to do some metacognition, to just sit back from the conversation and ask, how does it feel to have talked about these issues that nobody ever talks about? To hear your colleagues talk about them and tell you how they experience these and as we do this, I invite people to become self-compassionate. Because uh, Dr. Kristen Neff uh, from University of Ox uh, Austin, Texas, uh, suggests that there are four steps to self-compassion. And the first of those steps is to recognise that you are not alone. Uh, that experience that my colleague had that enabled her to have compassion on herself, to accept that, yeah, this imposter syndrome thing is a thing. And I can experience it as well. And there's something quite validating about this, this sense that, yeah, this is something that is normal. Uh, and very often we don't accept these feelings. We, we push them away. We say, well, I can't feel like this. I have to not feel like this. And just realizing that everyone feels like this from time to time can be hugely therapeutic as you realize that, yeah, that's okay. That's acceptable. And as I accept that I can feel like this, perhaps then that is the doorway to understanding why I might feel the way that I do. 
Now, I'm uh, practicing some self-compassion myself this week after I got an email that activated my imposter. So uh, I had uh, emailed a policy colleague offering help from my position of expertise on a particular topic, and I'd got this reply, which basically said, yeah, I'd love your help. Can you tell me about this, this, and the next thing? All three things. I was like, what is that? Uh, and he was speaking in acronyms, uh, and, uh, but, but nonetheless, I'd never seen any of these acronyms before. I googled them. Still nothing. <laughs> uh, and here I am now, paralysed uh, with, yeah, I offered help, thinking that I was an expert in this stuff, and clearly I have no idea the stuff that you're actually working on and the stuff that you actually need help with. <laughs> Uh, and of course, uh, at that point, I could have uh, done a load of bluster and bluff, and of course, yes, I'll help you with this, uh, or I could have just not replied. But uh, as I uh, practised self-compassion, as I thought to myself, yeah, I've been here before, uh, and of course I know that I don't know everything, and of course policymakers talk in acronyms all the time. Let's just ask. Uh, so can you clarify those acronyms? Uh, and let's meet up uh, and discuss this anyway, because clearly I need to know more about your context and the specific challenges that you're facing if I'm going to be able to help with this. Now, uh, a voice at the back of my mind is saying, no, no, that's a bad idea, Mark. You need to be the expert, and, uh, and that's why you offered help. And if you tell them that you're not really sure what those acronyms are, maybe that's really embarrassing. Maybe everyone knows what that acronym means. <laughs> the fact that you're going to suggest that you learn from him so that you can help, doesn't that kind of undermine your whole credibility and this whole idea that you're going to try and advise and help? Uh, well, yeah, maybe, um, uh, but uh, I sent my email back, I've yet to get a reply, uh, and, uh, and my hope is that he sees that humility, he sees that I'm someone he can talk to, and yeah, we can learn together, and I can, hopefully, help. But the key thing here is that we acknowledge our limitations. Uh, we're open, we're transparent about that, uh, rather than trying to solve our imposter syndrome by just trying to inhabit boots that are too big for us and pretend we know things that we don't uh, in order to meet the expectations of these people who think that we have expertise that we perhaps don't. Bad idea. Uh, and equally, uh, this is not about losing confidence to the point that I refuse to email, that I, I just run away <laughs> from, uh, from the scariness of this situation. Now, uh, one of the most common situations in which people experience imposter syndrome is when they switch discipline or topic. And I think this is one of the reasons that people very often stay in their lane. And of course, many of the greatest discoveries have in fact come from when people moved out of their familiar lane into a more unfamiliar lane. When they had the humility and the courage to interact with and learn from people who knew more than they did about how to swim in that particular new lane. And building self-confidence, having the humility to tell others that you're learning, can, in fact, contract this space between your perception of yourself and others' perception of you, which is, as I'm going to suggest in the chapter that's going to follow, the way in which we can most effectively uh, resolve imposter syndrome. Now, uh, this is something that's quite live for me at the moment. Um, I've just uh, told you how in this uh, podcast series I want to describe uh, some of the, the high points, some of the challenges of moving into a leadership role in my new position at Scotland's Rural College. 
Uh, and uh, I'm doing something there that is something I've done before, uh, which is kind of switching disciplines. So uh, I realised uh, quite uh, early on that if I was going to achieve impact from my research on peatlands, I needed to get into this policy space. I needed to understand carbon markets. And I knew nothing about carbon markets at the time. Uh, and so it was a huge learning journey. Um, and still to this day, I get a massive case of imposter syndrome when people introduce me as the expert on peatland carbon. Am I? Really? Maybe in the UK? Yeah, it seems that's how people see me. Uh, and yet I know how long ago I knew nothing about any of this stuff. And so when I started a new centre, I realised that this was an opportunity to move beyond carbon markets or peatlands into other areas. So carbon markets for salt marsh or agricultural uh, soils, um, moving beyond carbon markets to other ecosystem markets, biodiversity, uh, water quality, flood risk, uh, things like this. Uh, and it's become apparent to me as I've broadened my interest that we need more robust policy mechanisms. And as I've talked to members of the policy community, it's clear that lots of people have got lots of ideas, but nobody seems to have the full architecture in their mind of what is required. Uh, and least of all me, of course. But as a knowledge broker, uh, I'm talking to these different teams in Scotland and in England in particular about what they thought was needed, the solutions that they had, and I'm now piecing together these different ideas from Scotland, from England, from these different policy teams with the stuff that I've got in my mind based on the academic literature and my broader knowledge of environmental policy and governance. Uh, and Putting all that together, I've come up with this governance hierarchy, a single uh, one-page PowerPoint document that uh, shows everything that we've got at the moment in terms of uh, governance and policy around ecosystem markets and what might be missing. Uh, who's working on which parts of those missing parts of that hierarchy uh, and who's working on none of that, uh, which might be a research project for all I know or something that government might want to, uh, to try and make happen. And so I've gone from a place maybe just three months ago where I felt totally out of my depth to kind of standing back from this whole process and looking at myself and going, that's kind of crazy. You're actually advising governments on these issues. <laughs> uh, and of course, my imposter is like, yeah, and who are you to say that? Three months ago, you had no clue about any of this stuff. <laughs> uh, and I think the, the, the biggest wake up call along those lines was I was interviewed recently for a podcast called the Green Finance Podcast. And and the interviewer asked me all these questions and I had answers to all of these questions and I'm listening back to this and it actually properly sounds like I know what I'm talking about. And yeah, you know what, I guess I do know what I'm talking about. The fact that I didn't know what I was talking about three months ago doesn't matter. Uh, the fact that uh, I've learned fast is all that, that really matters. Um, and of course, uh, I'm making it clear to my policy colleagues that I'm not infallible. And of course, they know I'm not infallible because they've seen the process. I've come in uh, wanting to add value. I've been asking questions. I've been taking their ideas, sharing it with other policy colleagues, uh, taking those, uh, their, uh, those other ideas back to them and uh, integrating in some theory, some ideas from the literature uh, and saying, what do you think of this? And they're like, yeah, there's something missing. Ah, it doesn't quite work. And what about this? Uh, and ultimately now we've got 
uh, this this governance framework, which is something that uh, that yeah, it's come out of my head. It's not going to be what will happen in policy, uh, but this is something that is is grounded in reality and that is actually really useful. Huh? Someone actually spoke to us, codified all these different ideas, pointed out where the gaps might be, who's doing what and where, and okay, maybe there's a bit of a roadmap to what we maybe need to go and do now. Uh, but uh, there's a posture involved in all of this, uh, a posture of learning and humility, uh, I hope, <laughs> uh, uh, that, that uh, is something that I think is at the heart of this approach that I'm trying to take to imposter syndrome. And my imposter comes and says, who on earth are you to advise people like this when you're not the world expert in this? You haven't published uh, your framework yet, it hasn't gone through the peer review process, what if you're wrong? <laughs> And then me saying, yeah, I know I might be wrong, uh, but I'm being completely transparent uh, about the limitations of my knowledge. Uh, and in so doing, I'm learning, I'm adding value. And the key thing is that I add that value uh, and I am sure of the ideas uh, as I suggest them, uh, as sure as I can be, at least. Uh, and so this takes me back to the challenge uh, that uh, I was describing earlier this week uh, where I got a request and I didn't even understand the request. I don't know what they're talking about yet, uh, but I've proven that I have the capacity to learn this stuff and to learn it fast and to make a valuable contribution. And so I'll do the same thing again and I'll retain that posture of wanting to learn, wanting to add value. Uh, explaining that I don't know everything, uh, and yet at the same time not being entirely self-depreciating uh, and accepting that, yeah, I have stuff that I can add. So let's have a listen to the chapter, and I'll uh, structure this a bit better than I've rambled in this, uh, in this introduction. But I guess the thing, the thing I'm trying to communicate as I introduce this is that this is a live thing. I've recorded it this week with these challenges going through my head when it comes to this stuff. And I think that if you want to have the confidence to actually go out and make a difference, uh, to engage with policymakers in particular, uh, or anyone else who might take what you're doing and apply this at some kind of scale, where if it went wrong, it could be kind of scary. Uh, you need to have self-confidence. And imposter syndrome is one of the key reasons that you may never get there. So let's have a listen to the chapter, and I will conclude with that. Chapter 6. Making Friends with Your Imposter I can count the number of researchers I have met on one hand who have never suffered from imposter syndrome, and I've spoken to hundreds of researchers about this issue. Almost all of us experience a feeling of inadequacy from time to time, where we doubt our abilities and accomplishments and feel like a fraud. The experience is typically driven by a gap between how you see yourself and how others see you. So bouts of imposter syndrome often seem to occur at professional milestones where you would expect to feel secure, such as your first academic position or when you become a professor. Yes, professors suffer from imposter syndrome too. In fact, in my experience, this group actually suffers more acutely than any other because they are now lauded as international experts, and yet they know enough by this point in their career to know how much they do not know. Getting to the heart of imposter syndrome. If imposter syndrome is created by a gap between how you see yourself and how the world sees you, 
then to tackle imposter syndrome, you have to narrow this gap. You can start from either end. It is tempting to try and start at the other end of the gap, to try and change how others see you. You might try and manage expectations and push back on the whole expert thing. But in my experience, people just think you're trying to be humble or think that you can't take a compliment. It is remarkably difficult to get people to actually change their unrealistic views of you. I've found starting at your end of the gap to be much more effective, raising your own self-confidence to narrow the gap. To eliminate the gap altogether would require a narcissistic leap of faith in your own abilities, as the whole problem with imposter syndrome is the unrealistic nature of people's expectations and belief in you. The task instead is to narrow the gap enough so that you can live with it. When you start at your end of the gap, you discover that your critics' negative views of you are just as important a driver of imposter syndrome as the unrealistic positive views of those who love what you do. Criticism is baked into academic life, and most of us have had more than our fair share of bruising reviews and robust debates. However, it is when we give undue weight to the voices of our critics that the greatest gulf appears between our view of ourselves and the world's view. All those people in your audience who are about to listen to your presentation might think you're the authority on this subject, but if they had read your last review, or seen you being shot down in flames at that last conference, they wouldn't bother turning up, let alone listen to a word you have to say. At the root of imposter syndrome is relational esteem gone wrong. On one hand, we bask in the glory of the positive regard we are held in by those who love our work uncritically, while on the other, we feel crippled by the knowledge that others have seen through us and devalue us and our work through their criticism. Of course, neither view is accurate. They are just the views of outsiders who do not really know our full strengths or weaknesses. But when we value ourselves on the basis of the regard in which we are held by others, imposter syndrome is the inevitable outcome of the conflicting messages we all receive about our work. Achievement-based esteem is not the answer to this problem. The more accolades you collect, the wider the gap will grow between your view of yourself and the world's view. The cure for imposter syndrome is the same as the cure for people-pleasing and perfectionism. You need to build your intrinsic sense of worth. Tackling the root causes When you experience imposter syndrome and let it dominate your actions and your decisions, you're not just being shy. You're actually taking something from the world. There are people out there who need your work. There are problems that your discipline or the wider world needs to solve, and you have something to give. But imposter syndrome holds you back, and so you withhold your gifts to the world. Overcoming imposter syndrome is not just for you. It is for everyone who needs what you have to give. Overcoming imposter syndrome is about making the world a better place. However, there are few of us who defeat this condition once and for all. 
It will resurface the next time you fail or are asked to do something beyond what you feel capable of. In theory, when we have a strong enough sense of our intrinsic worth, we will be immune to imposter syndrome. But until we reach that point, the best most of us can hope for is to keep it in check. Personally, I am still on that journey, and my biggest failures and challenges can still trigger an attack. A recent bout of imposter syndrome occurred when I realised that my youngest daughter, who was six at the time, knew more about the fundamentals of a research project I was leading than I did. I study environmental governance and have worked in many systems around the world, from deserts to peat bogs and from arable to livestock farms. I had just brought in the largest research project of my career and for the first time we would be working with dairy farmers. We needed to introduce ourselves to farmers and thought that a project flyer would be useful, so I drafted something and mocked up a design with some black and white cows on the front page. My colleagues instantly pointed out that there was one major flaw in my flyer. Bulls don't produce milk. The clue, they explained, was that cows have others. I couldn't believe that I'd been so stupid and quickly found some images of cattle with prominent udders only to be told that I'd chosen a beef breed that is never used in dairy farms. I asked my colleagues to suggest some photos at this point. When I told my family over dinner that evening, my daughter gave me a despairing look as she slowly and carefully explained where milk comes from. As I listened, I realised that I couldn't convince my six-year-old that I knew anything about dairy farming, so how on earth would I ever be able to stand up in front of an actual dairy farmer let alone a policymaker, and have any shred of credibility. The weight of the £1.5 million investment in my project suddenly began to feel stifling. How had I managed to con my way into leading a project about something I knew so little about? My colleagues knew plenty, and it was probably their expertise that got us the money, but I was the principal investigator, and it would be me who would have to stand up at the end of the project and talk about our findings. As I grated cheese onto my pasta, I saw myself standing on stage at the Oxford Farming Conference, having made a gaffe that had left my fellow panellists and audience speechless. The facilitator had lowered their mic and was just staring at me in silence, amazed that I could say something so naive. I would never be trusted with a project of this scale ever again. There would be some kind of inquiry at work, and I'd be found out for the fraud that I was. I'd lose my job, and that would mean I'd lose my house. I would have let my family down so badly that they would never forgive me. I would lose everything. Do you remember I said earlier I have a habit of catastrophizing? Luckily, my two older children's wonder quickly turned into laughter at my naivety, and we all had a good joke about my ability to blag. Of course, I know where milk comes from, and you don't have to be a dairy expert to lead a project about environmental governance in dairy production systems if you've got dairy experts on your team. I have teetered on the brink of imposter syndrome regularly over the last three years of running this project, but I've been able to keep it in check so that we are able to do our research and use it to help others. My approach involves three ways of building intrinsic esteem in the face of imposter syndrome. One, 
recalibrate how you judge yourself to reframe your worth based on your identity and values rather than the views of others. Two, rebalance your internal, invisible power with the external, visible power that is given to you by the world. And three, draw on the previous two approaches to create equally credible, evidence-based, alternative narratives to your imposter syndrome narrative. Reframe yourself. Reframing enables you to view yourself in a new way, from a different perspective, or to use the metaphor, through a different picture frame. From this new angle, you see the same things that were depicted in the original picture, but you notice new things about them and draw new conclusions about what you are seeing. When you reframe yourself, you are not changing anything about you. Rather, you are looking at yourself from a new perspective. For example, I recently cycled 10 kilometers in a remarkably slow time. I'd pushed hard as I was training for an event, and I was exhausted despite my poor time. I concluded that I was losing rather than gaining fitness, and felt like pulling out of the event. Then I realized that I had confused kilometers for miles, and I'd actually cycled 10 miles in a very respectable time. I'd still cycled the same distance and felt just as tired, but in that moment, I suddenly felt fit and capable again. As an old Jewish proverb puts it, as a man thinks, so is he. What yardsticks are you measuring yourself against? How often do you use these measuring sticks to beat yourself? Who even do they belong to? If you suffer from imposter syndrome, then I suspect that a few of the measuring sticks you are using to beat yourself belong to other people who believe you are falling short. To reframe your view of yourself, you need to abandon these measuring sticks and take an alternative perspective from the inside out rather than through the eyes of your greatest critics or fans. To do this, you need to take time to look inside deeply enough to get a proper inside-out perspective. Specifically, you need to have a fine-grained understanding of the different facets of your identity and the values that underpin or animate these parts of yourself. Now you can ask yourself whether you acted in line with your values and whether you were authentically yourself, despite the failure that triggered your imposter syndrome. Alternatively, you might consider how proud you are of the way you dealt with the failure, or what you have learned from the mistakes you have made that will strengthen who you are and enable you to enact your values more effectively in future. If your imposter syndrome has been triggered by a challenge that feels beyond you, you can ask if acting in line with your identity and values calls for the courage to try even if you might fail. Alternatively, you can retreat from the challenge with no shame, knowing you are being authentic and enacting your values. In each case, you narrow the gap between your view of yourself and the world's view of you. In the first case, you accept that you failed but also see how you succeeded. The kinds of success you typically identify when you know you acted authentically and in line with your values are often worth more to you than the thing you failed at. 
there might be a gaping chasm between the expectations of your colleagues that you will get the grant or paper and the embarrassment of the resounding rejections. But when I see how I led the bid or paper writing process, the relationships and ideas that were formed, the skills that were developed in the team, or how I helped us all come to terms with the rejection and find a way forward, I know that I know I'm good because I'm me, and that's all I need to be, as my daughter put it. You'll have an opportunity to explore your identity and values in greater depth in Chapter 13, but at this point, I suggest you identify a few core elements and see if you can reframe a recent situation that left you feeling like an imposter. For example, empathy and participation are values that inform a lot of who I am and what I do day to day, so I reframed my cow-flyer experience as evidence that I was enacting my participation principle. I have a long-standing habit of passing anything that will go to stakeholders through my team for comment first even if I think it is far from controversial, and if I had not enacted that principle, I may be feeling much more embarrassed right now. Because I was able to laugh at myself, the experience opened a channel of empathy with a number of team members, particularly more junior colleagues who hadn't worked in dairy systems before, and they shared their own doubts and fears with me over subsequent meetings. I might not be proud of my original mistake, but I was proud with how I dealt with it, and I ultimately used the experience to build my confidence on a project that still regularly scares me to this day. Rebalance your power. The second of my three approaches to tackling imposter syndrome is to rebalance your internal, invisible power with the visible power that is given to you by the world. Again, the goal is to narrow the gap between your view of yourself and the world's view of you. In this case, you do so by empowering yourself, either to counter the disempowering narratives of your critics, or to feel and be closer to the levels of power others assume you have. You are given hierarchical power as you get promoted or chosen for prestigious roles, and you are given social power when you get a title like doctor or prof that others in society recognise and respect. Equally, you may be disempowered by your lack of status in the academic hierarchy or the social standing of your gender, skin colour or sexual orientation in any given context. Hierarchical and social power is easy to see, but hard to change, at least in the short term, and its effects can be deeply corrosive. The longer you look at yourself through the eyes of others based on their opinion of your position in hierarchies or your social standing, the wider the gap will grow between how you see yourself and how others see you. On one hand, your lack of hierarchical power or social standing can disempower your side of the gap, lowering your self-esteem. On the other hand, the hierarchical power or social standing others imbue you with can empower the other side of the gap, creating even higher expectations that are even further from reality than before. It was for this reason that I made my acceptance of my previous job conditional on them not making me a professor, 
There was already too big a gap between how I viewed myself and how the world viewed me, and I didn't want to make it any wider at that point by creating the expectations that go with a prof title. In the end, they offered me the job on the condition that I went through the process of becoming a professor, but it took me a whole year after getting the promotion to actually tell people, or to put it on my email signature or social media profiles. Rather than running from hierarchical or social power, as I did when I tried to avoid promotion, there is another path where you narrow the gap by increasing two types of less visible power. Like hierarchical and social power, these alternative power bases only change slowly and with great effort, but they are much more within our control if we choose to nurture them. The first is personal power. This is the power of self-awareness and strength of character. It is a quiet confidence, often born of overcoming adversity. It is a reputation for integrity and honesty. It is building others up and equipping and inspiring them to be their best rather than gossiping or criticizing. It is the creative power to see things differently, combined with the courage to do things differently. This type of power is characterized by humility. When I say this, I do not mean submissiveness. Rather, I mean an honest estimation of your own worth and abilities, as well as your weaknesses and failings. True humility is secure in the knowledge that your worth and abilities are good enough, rather than better than other people's, and your weaknesses and failings are an equally valuable part of you that keeps you grounded and enables you to give more to the world than would otherwise be possible. If you are listening to this list of personal attributes with incredulity, you are not alone. I am regularly met with disbelief during trainings when researchers ask how such powers can be cultivated. Surely these are things you are born with, they are parts of your personality, either you've got them or you haven't. Well, perhaps depending on your life experience, some of these characteristics may come more easily to some than to others. But I believe that personal power is a skill that can be practiced if you are willing to invest the emotional energy and commitment to do so. You can cultivate self-awareness through the practice of mindfulness, or you can get help via a coach and or counsellor. Coming to understand your character and building a resilient self-image by facing the demons of your past. You can decide and draw red lines on key issues ahead of time so that when you find yourself faced with important or controversial decisions in the heat of the moment, you stay on the right side of the line. You can choose to build others up in every interaction you have by making a practice of appreciating and voicing the good you see in those around you. It feels awkward to start with, but even if you have to apologize in advance for embarrassing someone, the embarrassment of a compliment fades fast, but the positive effect of your words can linger for years, providing comfort and sustenance in dark times. You can foster creative practice, making creative spaces and collisions happen on purpose. And when you know who you are and the values that drive you, doing the right thing despite the fear becomes the only possible course of action. Humility is founded on self-knowledge, and exercises like the one in chapter 13 can provide you with that foundation.
The second power that can help you close the gap between how you view yourself and how the world sees you is transpersonal power. This is the power that comes from being connected to some greater cause than your own career or personal goals. This power is based on the deeply important purpose that emerges at the intersection between your identity and your values, giving you a clear, value-based sense of direction, even if that directly challenges the status quo. It is these values that imbue transpersonal power with a sense of something deeper, larger, more significant, and beyond the sphere of your own life and influence. You can cultivate a connection to a broader and deeper cause by understanding the purpose that emerges from your unique sense of self and the values that underpin and animate you, as you'll explore in Chapter 13. Once you understand your purpose, you can hold it in your mind at all times and make a practice of filtering your decisions through this purpose. In my case, all professional decisions get passed through the question, Will this enable me to help make the world a better place? You can keep asking why in your teams and meetings. Now, instead of diving straight into the agenda or the most pressing issues, you stand back and remind the group of your joint purpose, inviting that purpose to pervade your meeting, subtly influencing your decisions to keep them in line with the big picture and keeping your team motivated on a deeper level. Create equally credible, evidence-based, alternative narratives. Finally, my third approach to overcoming imposter syndrome is to draw on what you have learned from the first two approaches as you reframe and empower yourself and start replacing your imposter narrative with an increasingly evidence-based, alternative, more helpful and empowering narrative. The first step is to become more mindful of the initial stages of imposter syndrome so that you can spot the imposter narrative before it has grown arms and legs. Once you've done that, you can interrogate the veracity of the doubts it is casting over your abilities and the source of those doubts. Whether or not you are able to dismiss these doubts, you start looking on purpose for the alternative narrative and shift your attention to it instead. Over time, with practice, you can learn to spot the warning signs early and move quickly into an alternative, more helpful narrative and avoid being paralyzed by imposter syndrome. It might sound crazy, but I regularly have an internal dialogue with my imposter. I'm not denying his existence. There are good reasons why he starts talking to me, usually about my failures and shortcomings, and it is clearly pointless trying to deny that I make mistakes. I don't like the things he tells me, his defeatist tone of voice, or the way he makes me feel. But instead of getting angry with him, I have compassion. And from that place of empathy, I start telling him a different story that is equally true, based on the evidence that I have achieved things of worth, despite my limitations, that people find value in what I do despite my mistakes, and that even when it feels like my failure dwarfs anything I've ever done of worth, I am still me, and I still have value. I have made friends with my imposter. I listen to him, he listens to me, and together, we're good enough to keep moving forwards.